Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. This is David Parker, and welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. I am joined here by my co-host, uh, Luke Mason. Yay! <laughs> okay, so <laughs> yay! <laughs> so do, we're do, do, uh, really true fiction. Do 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 really do, do, true do. fiction. Do, do, do. Really do, true do, fiction. Do, do. We're gonna make our own song. So we're here to discuss a particularly um, important movie in my life because it really introduced me to cinema as a medium that could be explored intellectually as opposed to simply uh, passively experienced. And that is due to my very good friend, Kendall Grant. If you're listening, thank you very much for that. It's Donnie Darko, which came out in 2001. Jake Gyllenhaal and his sister are in it. There's lots of uh, Drew Barrymore's in it. There's a lot of characters that... Uh, Patrick Swayze. Patrick Swayze. There's tons of, uh, tons of very famous actors in it. So I also believe this was... One of the first movies, if not the first, with the credit to Seth Rogen. True. Yes, right? it's the first I've ever seen him in. And he plays a pretty sophisticated character with the mind-blowing line. His first line of the movie that just really makes you think of his depth, where he's looking at Gretchen, one of the girls in his school, and he says to her, I like your boobs. Literally, it, I think that he has three other lines in the entire movie. And that one might have been the smartest. <laughs> and... When you like really reflect on what Seth Rogen must have meant by "I like your boobs," you think, "Man, yeah, I can really see why he went on to the honestly literary esque really... <laughs> type movie career that he did with all the highbrow roles." Honestly, like uh, it was pretty much a predictor for his future. I would say <laughs> it's hard to see how she didn't immediately fall for him I in mean, that scene. That, that's a tactic, a tried and true tactic <laughs> throughout hey, the ages. Hey. I like your boobs. <laughs> like, both kind of a compliment and also not at all. Yeah, not the way he said it either. It was very much like in the context of, of just being kind of leery, leering at her. Okay, well, so now you've piqued a question in my mind. How do you say to someone, I like your boobs in a way that isn't leery or this creepy? Is the, okay, I, it, I mean, A, it could be in a very intimate moment that then you, could, then you could say it without... I mean, if you're saying it to someone you don't know... It's a good question. Yeah, she's new to the school, so yeah. presumably they don't know each other. Well, you're right. It's it's a hard uh, it's a hard opener. We're gonna have to put some thought into that. If one. anyone out there has successfully opened with "I like your boobs" and it wasn't received in a negative manner, I'd like to hear how you did that because <laughs> it strikes me as basically impossible. <laughs> But and we're putting that challenge out there. <laughs> is, yeah, I don't know why it's a challenge you'd ever even try, but if you do, I want to no, no, know how you do it well. No, don't try it because we're not we're not uh, we're, we're not saying that you should go and harass women with crude talk. We're saying 
if you've succeeded, we would like to hear. So the challenge is <laughs> if you've succeeded in the past and you feel There's bad. There's just no it. way I could see it ever working. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, on that Donnie note, Darko. On that note, Donnie Darko, a film that occurs over the course of 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes, and 12 seconds. It was almost the prequel for that franchise, 28, uh, 28 days, days currently. <laughs> Okay, so basically the very short plot summary is that our main character, Donnie Darko, encounters a psychological manifestation, one might say, although we don't really know what it is, that gets him to leave his house and is consequently saved from dying, and then proceeds to go down a path of doing some rather crazy and destructive things while living out these 28 days and interacting with various other characters or 20 sorry yeah 28 days and interacting with various other characters falling in love he also sees his therapist a number of times he seems to come to knowledge of time travel and at the end makes some decisions that lead to everything that happens in the movie never having happened yeah, the majority of the movie is kind of spent showing Donnie either at his house with his interacting with his family or at his school interacting with his classmates or kind of hanging out with a couple of his friends. And that psychological manifestation you referred to shows itself in this giant creepy bunny. Named it really is Frank. pretty creepy. Like honestly, yes. I remember the first time I watched it, I was a little bit terrified by this creature it's it's off-putting there's a it, there's a uncanniness to it that can bother you and then obviously as with any good movie they play kind of creepy music when he appears or intense music to, to get your emotions up yeah i mean it's unsettling because a bunny or a rabbit is generally a cute thing or a funny thing or like something you enjoy so to have Fr- frank the bunny it looks so creepy and scary. It's it's extra off-putting. In that sense. It's like that clown after midnight idea. There's something so wrong about this. It's an unsettling form of a horror as opposed to like a jump. Well, I remember right? you, you mentioning... More conventional monster type. Yeah, you mentioned that you... The first time you saw it, you actually thought it was a hor- kind of a horror film. Uh, well, so I probably haven't seen Donnie Darko previous to for this podcast maybe about 12 or 15 years I, I don't know so I actually really enjoyed watching this again because of kind of it was kind of like watching it again for the first time I I did remember some of the major plot points like the jet engine crashing into his house and the kind of weird time travel aspects to it that I didn't but I didn't remember any of the details or any of it so I did kind of go to it with fresh eyes again which was really nice but it was a part of me that kind of remembered this more as like a almost a horror movie because of Frank. And Frank is obviously so integral into the like marketing and the aesthetic of the movie. Yeah. And like he's I, so creepy. He is the aesthetic of the movie yeah. and yet really plays kind of a minor role. Yeah, he had way less scenes than I remember him having. And yet he's so crucial to the movie as it goes. I think the scene that I actually found scariest the first couple of times I watched it was when he's in the therapist's office and she has him um, in a... Hypnotized. She has him hypnotized and he appears and he's like, I see him right now and he's just standing there, not even saying anything, just looking at Donnie. Yeah, that scene was the most conventional horror type scene 
because it was a jump scare. Most of the movie, when Frank appears to Donnie, he appears to Donnie in what I would what I kind of call the shadow state that Donnie's in, which through the, all the the whole movie, we're basically led to imagine Donnie is a paranoid schizophrenic, and Frank actually represents. I guess another personality of Donnie's and it's his darker personality that convinces him to kind of do some of these bad things that Donnie's does throughout the movie in his kind of stupor state, or I call it his shadow state, which is some of the best facial expressions I've ever seen oh, that Jake Gyllenhaal does Jake in those Gyllenhaal's scenes. Jake Gyllenhaal's complete transformation of his face into this kind of dead blank emptiness, but there's yeah. an evil grin always on his face when he's doing these things too. Yeah, his performance is incredible. I mean, it stands up. And this whole movie, with with what basically with the movie starting with that first early scene where Donnie is out at the golf course because Frank has beckoned him to come out there, and we're like led to believe that this is actually Donnie's subconscious, maybe or like another personality that's a, a, a darker part of Donnie that's fighting with his lighter self. And then because he's out of the golf course and the jet engine crashes into Donnie's room. and But it's at that point that Frank tells Donnie that there's like 28 days, six hours, whatever it is, 42, 42 minutes, minutes and 12, 12 seconds. <laughs> yeah, it's like very exact until the world will end. And so this is like step one onto like what the hell is going on in this movie kind of thing. I, I do remember not understanding this movie the first time I watched it. And that's exactly how I felt again <laughs> last night when we watched it. So I had to go watch some Donnie Darko ending explained. And it's extra confusing because apparently, and like, don't get me wrong, this movie's awesome. And we watched what I guess was the theatrical release because the whole movie's awesome. And then it ends. And I have this feeling it happens a few times with movies, not often where I was like, okay, I know I just watched a really good movie, but I don't know why. <laughs> like I don't, I can't say exactly yeah, why yeah. this is great. It's a feeling I had the first time I watched Memento. At the end, I'm like, okay, that was really good, but I don't know why. <laughs> and I <laughs> think that's the the fun of this movie. And uh, one of the things I, I wanted to say is, like, this was honestly the first movie that I, f- I felt that at the end and then sat around and talked with my friends about it for hours and hours afterwards to kind of get a grip on what's happening here and pull out all the symbolism and figure out what's actually going on. And that's one of the things I really love about Donnie Darko is everything basically is symbolic and everything's pointing to to something else, similar to, to what you said about Michael Clayton, is the scenes in this movie matter and every scene matters. Yes, very much so. Maybe more than any other movie that we've, done so far i would preface everything we're going to say by you will follow this much better if you watch this movie yeah yeah this movie is so confusing at the end and i learned it's actually even more confusing because the version that we watch which apparently is the theatrical version there isn't enough given in the theatrical version to the audience to actually legitimately help them understand the ending so you actually only can totally understand the ending through anything in the movie itself if you watch the director's cut, which I guess we didn't watch because at the end I was like, what the hell? Uh, in the director's cut, there's more scenes which pull from this book that Donnie gets from his physics teacher called The Philosophy of Time Travel. And there's a lot more detail 
in the director's cut of things from that book that make what's happening in the movie make more sense. Because if you just watch the theatrical version like we did, basically the whole movie is kind of like a movie about mental health, where it's about Donnie's paranoid schizophrenia, as his therapist puts it at one point to his parents. And Frank is a manifestation of that schizophrenia, and Frank actually is making him do all of these things along the way before the world ends that are illegal (laughs) and destructive and vandalistic. But it turns out, and big spoilers, but I also don't even really understand it myself, so (laughs) don't worry about it. After the jet engine crashes into Donnie's bedroom, which is at the near the beginning of the movie, it's like 15 minutes in, that actually causes a fissure between what is considered to be the primary universe and a new tangent universe. And it's in this tangent universe that the majority of the movie takes place. And actually, instead of Frank being a manifestation of Donnie's brain, he's actually what's called a manipulated dead who dies in the tangent universe, but part of his job is to guide Donnie in such a way to help return the tangent universe to the primary universe, which is actually what happens at the very end of the movie. So there's all of these details about tangent and primary universes and time travel and dead and living and receivers. So Donnie is considered the living receiver. All of these things that when I watch the YouTube videos on Donnie Darko, anyway, this way, it's like, okay, I guess that makes sense. I would have gotten none of that from the version <laughs> yeah, of the movie we watched. Don't explain any of those things. The really. ending of the movie that we watched without the director's cut at the end, I'm just like, what is happening? There's like this like black hole coming out of the sky. So in the director's cut, they just go into more detail into this kind of MacGuffin book that Donnie gets about halfway through the movie from his physics teacher called The Philosophy of Time Travel, which talks about these things, which makes the actual ending make sense. I guess I don't understand why it wasn't put in the theatrical <laughs> release because you come out of that and be like, I don't know what happened. Like, it's a good movie. I liked it. I just don't know what happened. And maybe that's the, maybe that was the point. Maybe they just wanted people to walk out of the theater and be like thinking about it and trying to figure it out, as opposed to more explaining. I, I don't know either. But that's confusing. Yeah, it's <laughs> that's really confusing. It's very confusing because like, I brought up Memento a second ago. The first time I watched Memento, I didn't understand it, but I was able to figure out what was happening in Memento from things in the actual movie. I didn't need a new cut of the movie to figure out. Whereas with Donnie Darko, apparently, I needed a different cut, right, to actually understand what was happening. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. The tools aren't there. It's an unreliable narrative in a sense, right? Because, or, or it's, yeah, it's definitely. Which is exactly what Donnie is, I guess. Yeah, an, uh, he's an unreliable narrator. Yeah, exactly. But so, again, that's what's so kind of fucked up about this movie is that it's so good, even though it doesn't make sense at the end. Yeah, and you know they, I mean? so many of like the shots are great. The acting, as we've already sort of talked about, is great. And, and the I think a lot of the lessons it's trying to teach are great, too. And even... I think the the realistic way that it shows being a teenager too and how teenagers interact with their parents is really awesome. Like there's that scene where Donnie's sitting on his bed, doesn't want to talk to his mom. His mom's trying to get through to him and then she walks out and closes the door and he calls her a bitch, right? And like we've all experienced moments in our lives where we've like probably treated our parents or, or loved ones in ways that we didn't kind of felt bad about afterwards, but like we were just so torn up emotionally about something that uh and then try to process things that we weren't able to to maybe be our best selves 
Yeah, I mean, because Donnie, Donnie himself, he's basically set up as your run-of-the-mill teenager with, I think he's about 17, 16 or 17, and he's just kind of broody and angry. So he's set up really well to be someone who's struggling with mental health issues, right? Even before the tangent universe happens, which is the jet engine crashing into his bedroom before that happens even we find out that he's taking pills that he's medicated that he does already have a therapist so all of that actually turns out it's a red herring and yet it's something it's a thread that's followed throughout the whole movie once the tangent universe starts donnie has multiple scenes with his therapist his parents even meet with his therapist in the tangent universe and so it's like you're totally like, oh man, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> poor Donnie, <laughs> and he's struggling with some I, really I, painful I, stuff. There, he has, and he's got this issue that that has happened where he's not allowed to drive till he's 21. His life is kind of not going in the greatest direction, and I like the comparison between him and his older sister and him and his youngest sister because his younger sister is kind of like this super popular, talented, but like very much mainstream individual and his old older sister's obviously incredibly intelligent she gets into harvard uh but she's kind of like partying a little bit for a year also popular and it seems like donnie has a few friends but he's not really that popular and he and he does kind of get bullied at school but he's also got like this strength of conviction about things that you see throughout the movie. Like he'll, he challenges the, the motivational speaker saying this is, this is bullshit. Like everything you're saying is crap. It's not human. uh, The spectrum of human emotions cannot be broken down to the dichotomy between fear and love. Right. But we see, we're seeing a, a young man who he's done one act that he's done in his life has forced him to be on medication it's forced him to not be able to drive till he's 21. And it seems to be kind of, of kind of be the overarching theme of his life right now. Yeah. This movie's so confusing. I don't even really know where to start. (laughs) (laughs) Cause yeah, he is, he is those things. And yet because all of those things, majority of those things that we see happen in the tangent universe, I'm like, well, is it really real? (laughs) Well, I guess it is real. Let's say it's real. Yeah. That's for the sake of, I'm yeah. talking about it, I guess. Little mild character portrait of Donnie. Broody, angry, normal teenage stuff. He's really smart, though. He's got good grades, and he just knows a lot of things. Kind of stuff that we, he almost thinks are general knowledge and is then is surprised when no one else around him knows these things. The two examples that st- come to mind is he's, when he's talking to Gretchen, which is his love interest, she tells him that she has to write a report on the greatest human invention. And Donnie's like, oh, that's easy. It's antiseptics. I mean, think of all the lives that are saved through sanitation. And she's like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, that wouldn't yeah, even have been just, anything that crossed her mind. He's certain of it. He's right, certain of it. Yeah. And then there's a rather hilarious conversation between him and a couple of his friends when they're out shooting like a BB gun at some bottles and stuff uh, in the woods. And they're all talking about, <laughs> I think the guys are talking about, his friends are talking about how... There's only one female Smurf. There's there's Smurfette, so they must only have gangbangs. And like that's why Papa Smurf made her, so that they could do it. And then Donnie's like, Gargamel made Smurfette, not Papa Smurf. And they don't even have dicks. So what are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah, just rips rips them a new (laughs) one, basically. And then like a funny Donnieism, I guess, is 
he immediately starts musing. He's like, what would be the point of life without a dick? <laughs> you know, like he, he like immediately waxes philosophical about confronting the absurd without his sex organ. <laughs> and he's like, his poor friends are left both defeated and ignored. In one fell swoop, Donnie has removed their argument and then is no longer interested in talking to them about it and is on to the next step. So I think their line is like, oh, why you gotta be so goddamn smart all the time, Donnie, or something like that. And so, yeah, it's a good, like those are a couple early-ish scenes that really set the stage that like, Donnie's a smart kid. He's got kind of a good head on his shoulders. He's probably struggling with mental health, which is why he sees his therapist, why he takes his pills. His therapist thinks it's paranoid schizophrenia. So you actually really like have a lot of sympathy, I think, for Donnie. He, he, there's a couple. There's a. There's again because this is such. This is 80s nostalgia before 80s nostalgia was the thing because this movie set in October of 1988. There's the bully who bullies Donnie. Uh, so Donnie is basically kind of I don't know. Like it's the, the a cool thing is that he's so average. Yeah, he's, he's struggling he's with really so much of that average teen stuff. One, you know, he's really cares about sex and he thinks about it all the time. And, you know, his girlfriend's trying to tell him about the beauty of the universe and, and having this deep conversation with him. And then he turns to her and he's like, yeah, we've been dating for like two weeks now. Is something going to ha- like happen or whatever? <laughs> yeah, I like that. The averageness of his struggles. They're, they're, these are real struggles that anyone can identify with. Especially a teenager. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so when you're watching this... It's not confusing. Like, as the narrative is unraveling itself and you're in, like, because every, every 10 minutes or so, you're getting, like, a screen that gives the date and then says how many days left till the end of the world. And the only, upon first viewing, the only reason that we, the audience, have to believe that the world is going to end is because Frank told Donnie, Frank the bunny, on a golf course in the middle of the night. Luring him out of his house so he didn't get hit by now, and like this seems very meaningful, but Donnie is not living like the world's gonna end, and he's not really like telling anyone. So it does kind of feel like Donnie it's almost like Donnie knows this isn't real. There's like an element of Donnie it's an extra element of such a great why this movie is so great is because as the audience, we get the impression that Donnie is on to his own brain. It's like Donnie knows that his brain is lying to him and he just needs to keep on doing like normal life stuff. Because if he really believed what Frank was telling him, I think he would be acting in a much more manic way than he does the rest of the movie. Like he'd be like so compelled to at least tell other people and like make sure everyone knows and like try to figure out why this is happening. Yeah. Whereas, he talks to his therapist about Frank, but he he's kind of like still saying, I saw Frank in a way that he would talk about anything else. And he does else. refer to Frank as an imaginary friend, too, yeah. right? It's like, is this a real or imaginary? And he literally says, imaginary. Which so, is probably, again, hmm. a clue to the non-actual psychosis nature of this. Because Dan, uh, Donnie is still able to apprehend his own faculties. Yeah, he, do- he doesn't believe in the in the reality of frank he thinks he's imaginary and weirdly though these coincidences which would not i from what i know which is very limited i don't think that would be in keeping with the way an actual schizophrenic would 
No, I think yeah, I think they would fully believe in the reality of their delusion. But it's interesting because you see throughout this, he keeps getting hints that maybe it is real. He obviously has a kind of relationship with Frank of reality because Frank tells him to do something and he goes and does it. You know, he floods the school. He burns down the motivational speaker guy's house. He He's doing these things that Frank is telling him to. And then there's that scene with the therapist where he says, well, I have to do it because Frank saved my life. Which, of course, upon first viewing again, really, if you thought about it while you're watching, well, Frank and Donnie are the same person. Frank is just yeah. part of Donnie's psyche that he is channeling to do these other things. But, and this is just striking me now as so brilliant, there is a clue there that it's not because Donnie doesn't think Frank is real. He actually does say, no, he's just imaginary, and I know that. And so I guess I just didn't pick up on that because I wasn't thinking about that. Right? <laughs> like, yeah, that Oops. wouldn't be what Donnie would say if, if he was actually schizophrenic. There, there's something that Donnie has done that's put him on this path still in the primary universe. So it's set up perfectly that he's going to be. So like, this is why this movie is such a mind fuck. Uh, because it's presented so normally. Like the actual narration, the narrative output on the screen is just teenagers and teachers and families doing normal teenager family stuff. And it's funny because you go the first up until the first scene where they walk into the school with this kind of this ominous feel. You've met Frank. Donnie almost died. And then this happy music comes out and it's like high school where everything matters. There's a little nothing like matters at all. There's a right? long shot with a, that song. I can't remember. It's like something happens now. I'm head over heels. Very 80s, right? Yeah, like you get yeah. all of that 80s gooey feeling coming back from watching this. There's a guy doing cocaine in the hallway. <laughs> in the hall, off a like a, yeah, a university student. No, no, I mean high, a high school, school student. Just the doing, bully guy, yeah. Seth. I think his name is, or Sean, maybe. I don't know. He's the guy that hangs out with uh, Seth, Seth Rogen, so you can yeah, understand yeah. the level of his uh, <laughs> ability. <laughs> and so it's very confusing. But so so Donnie, Donnie's concerns are the concerns of, like you said, a teenage boy getting a girlfriend, you know, feeling... Fighting with his parents. Fight, fighting with his parents. But then feeling bad about fighting with them. Feeling that he's smarter than everyone else. But like, and and frustrated by that, that we see him lash out a few times. Adult, adults, he uh, he tells one teacher to you know shove something up her ass. Yeah, that's and- actually the the first scene I wanted to really talk about. The context is his teacher. I can't remember her last name, but her name's Kitty. She's actually I re- I recognize her. She's the actress that plays Dwight's babysitter slash date. <laughs> Yes, in, yes, in the yes. office. Yeah. Uh, when they go for Michael and Jan's dinner party, <laughs> it's the same actress who shows up with Dwight. Uh, she plays Kitty. I can't, I don't even know what she teaches exactly. But Well, she was a gym teacher because there's that scene where the sister said, Remember that d- gym teacher? Right. Uh, now she seems to be like the emotion teacher of the <laughs> yeah, school. Yeah. So it's been set up that this Kitty teacher lady is very interested in this self help guy named Jim Cunningham, played by Patrick Swayze. And so she's been showing her students in the high school his videos about self-help, pop psychology, you name it. The only way you can embrace love is to get rid of fear. 
yada, yada, yada. And so on a blackboard in the classroom with all the students sitting around, she draws a line. And at one end, she writes love. On the other side, she writes fear. And then she gives all of the students um, scenarios to read out and to then mark an X where on the fear love line. So that scenario falls on. So when it's Donnie's turn, he goes up and he reads his and... He's like, this is stupid. I'm not going to put an X because there's so many other factors than just fear or love. Like you're really uh, (laughs) restricting the complexity of human emotion and feeling and the depth by just giving it two. And then, but then Kitty's like, well, no, you got to pick one. It's love or fear. That's the context. Or I'll fail you. Or I'll fail you. Like, so she's starting to. And she's using fear, ironically, (laughs) (laughs) to inspire obedience. Well, irony is double distilled when it's perpetrated by people who don't understand the concept true true (laughs) (laughs) and so this was like this was a major scene for me to think about because it's clear that donnie has a level a capacity for thinking and imagination and exploration creation that is being kind of stomped on by his teacher and i feel like this is one of the saddest hardest things is when a person who has capacity beyond their authority figures, they have capacities beyond what their authority figures can deal with. And so what happens is then we all have to start living in these small tyrannies. Oh, where that these, is a great, great where, point. Where Donnie, it appears that Donnie already has more mental capacity and imagination than his teacher. But his teacher is the boss of the classroom. So she gets to tell him what's going to happen. She gets to be in charge of his grade. She has power over him in some way. And yet he has more ability than her, let's say. He might not actually, but it's just she seems very internally focused. And Donnie seems very externally focused. And so they're heading in opposite directions in terms of their cognitive careers (laughs) and abilities to think. And yet she decides not to, she just decides to like put her foot down and say no we will not grow, we will not think, we will not explore, and you have to listen to me because I'm the boss. <laughs> and whereas, like, okay, A, if your authority derives from your title, you deserve neither. But it's just a missed opportunity, not just for Donnie, but for his teacher. Like, in her position, she could, in that spot, be like, well, you know what? He's presenting a new thing that even though it's rubbing against my prejudice or preconception let's explore it a bit let's go a little bit beyond my even my own insecurities and then maybe i can grow too and not just my students <laughs> right yeah yeah and, and and that attitude that attitude of if you're the person with a little bit of authority over someone that attitude difference between no i haven't thought about this yet so i'm gonna shut it down because now i'm not in control of the situation as opposed to the exploratory stance where she could be like Wow, so what might be some other things other than fear and love that could be influencing this scenario you've just read out, Donnie? Like she has that opportunity and she chooses the insecure route. And I I wonder, is it insecurity or is it really just a desire like for control and obedience and, and because she doesn't seem I often people like this don't seem very insecure. They're just genuinely think they're right. And they're ruthlessly pursuing that. It could be to the so, disregard of everything else. It could be uh, like a something like a Dunning Kruger effect thing. For those who don't know, the Dunning Kruger effect is this idea in psychology where basically the people who know the least 
are the most confident in their prognostications and the people who know the most are the most are, cautious and are the most out. cautious yeah. because they know about how many how complicated things are and how many things they themselves could get wrong in their own biases it's also mirrors that bertrand russell quote way before at the beginning of the 20th century where he said the problem with the world is that all the foolish people are so sure of themselves and all the wise people are so unsure of themselves i, I completely agree and, and in fact uh, going more into this if you want to be a leader or if you want to help people and fo- and to become better and hopefully follow you or whether or bring them up as a teacher would to make them better people the last thing you want to do is shut down their creative abilities to to say no I don't care how you think this could be done better like that's not how you lead a company that's not how you lead a you know that's not how you teach a class because when you do that you immediately make the student or the employee feel like they're not valued right the the value here is not in them as a person it's actually in your maybe it's your desire to complete the task so it's like it seems that this kitty lady really wants to just have everyone put the scenario on check the, the box line. of the task check the box of the task and or maybe it's like what you said maybe it's insecurity on their part where they, they don't want to entertain other ideas because it can make them look like they haven't fully prepared or any of these things but when you are in charge of people treating them like task fulfilling beings as opposed to people with a whole range of let's say human emotions just like we're talking about here the end result is that the people under you become bitter and resentful towards you because you're not actually giving them, you're not treating them like people. Yeah, that's a really good point. And she's she's not. It's not a class, like there's, no, there's nothing about this situation where his teacher Kitty is giving any sort of impression that she cares about the kids learning anything. It's just about getting the right answer based on this particular paradigm which is this self-help emotion class she's teaching which has easy answers and so when donnie you know a 17 year old burgeoning mind filled with the chaos of being and understanding that he's actually so much smaller than he thought and that's actually really exhilarating because there's so much more to learn uh she just invokes her small-minded tyranny yeah, on him, right? I like I like that term, small-minded tyrannies, and and we all live in in tiny tyrannies if we allow people like that. So there's there's like two. I'm thinking about it from two directions, from the teacher's area. So from Kitty's perspective, she's missing an opportunity to learn herself. Yeah. From Donnie's perspective, how does he transcend these small-minded tyrannies of people who? come around you know it could be a boss it could be an advisor in in graduate school it could be just someone who has very mild power over you in some way shape or form in your life who your capacities it becomes very clear that your capacities are at least right now probably bigger than theirs are in intellectual emotional character you name it right And Donnie, he's a 17-year-old kid, so he doesn't handle it very maturely. He tells her to shove a book up her ass, which is kind of funny. But it also made me think, okay, how do you transcend these if you're not going to be immature like Donnie was in that situation? And A, I don't really know. I actually think that this is one of the life's hardest questions for me, is how do I transcend anybody who appears to care more about authority than learning? 
And how do you so so often these people have control over you, like not just in not some manner, ju- and, and in some manner, but but not only that, like they maybe control where you're trying to get to. So say you have, uh, so say Donnie really wanted to go to, we don't know this, but say he really wanted to go to a prestigious school, and grades would have hurt him to the point, or bad grades would have hurt him to the point where he couldn't. Then suddenly she's not just controlling his now or his present, but his dreams of the future. And that is ter- it can be terrifying to people. So I agree. How do you overcome, even on an emotional level and a perspective level, this tyranny that people are having over your own dreams? Well, I don't know. That's so grand. Like, I don't know how to pick apart what Donnie would do if he wanted to do all this and the grades were that important to him. Unfortunately, I think the advice there is you just got to play the game then <laughs> and try. But I think what I thought about for, okay, in this scenario, what what's a more mature way to transcend that? And I think it's, so Donnie could have walked away from that class studied up on the literature that this class was based on, started picking apart what he thought were potential faults, building a case of his own against it, and then presenting that case to a wider audience. So that it's it's a message going beyond just his teacher. So maybe she wins that battle and he just checks a mark on the line and says, oh, it's more fear than love. Okay, whatever. I'll do what you want right now. But use it as a galvanizing force to go learn more about it and then go give it out into the world more broadly for more people to talk about and think about because it's not like Kitty. Kitty doesn't have authority over everyone, right? His teacher doesn't have authority over maybe his principal. It's the other way around or just other people, other parents in the school. So instead of authority, she has to use persuasion. And persuasion starts to slowly, starts to not work the more data and evidence piles up against the persuader. Yeah, well, and and he does kind of do a little bit of that later in the movie when he addresses the topic in front of everyone. Uh, the whole, like the school, whole school assembly that's occurring, where he basically says, you're, you're, you know, you're peddling falsehoods, like this is, things don't work this way. And then he goes to each of the people that have like expressed things that they're afraid of and says, this is the solution to your problem. Or at least everyone has that problem and you're just going to have to figure it out. Yeah. That's the, that's like the part two of Donnie kind of rebelling against these petty tyrants that he's come across in his, his teacher. And then this other guy, Jim Cunningham, who is Patrick Swayze's character, who is uh, the self-help motivational speaker who comes to the school and I think, yeah, there's three three students. It's an assembly, and there's three students who says, like, one of them's like, uh, how do I tell my stepsister that I think she eats too much? <laughs> and the second one says, I can't remember what he says, but the third guy's like, well. Second one's, what should I be when I grow up? What should I be when I grow up? And then the third kid says, I want to fight. I'm getting bullied. What should I do? And, you know, this Jim Cunningham guy gives them really watered down, buzzword kind of well, you know, just be yourself and stick true and trust in love, not fear, right? And Donnie, his first question when he goes to the microphone says, how much are they paying you to be here? <laughs> yeah. And then later in the movie, we see how big Jim, like he's basically lives in a mansion. So clearly he gets a lot of money from this. Uh, all of that implying it's just a big racket. Then Donnie basically gives hard truth advice to the three kids. He's like, well, if you think your stepsister's eating too much, 
tell her she's got to stop eating into exercise because it's not actually that fun to be fat. And then he says, no one knows what they want to be when they grow up. And that's fine. Live with that ambiguity and use it as like energy. And then he says, you know what? You're going to get bullied. Maybe you got to get, maybe hit the gym, hit some weights, get tougher. People leave you alone. And so the, the difference of advice that Jim gives to these kids the and Donnie gives to them is like night and day, right? And yet there seems to be more honesty in Donnie's analysis, even though it's maybe less optimistic of a message. And I liked that too, because with when Donnie was talking like that, it's there's like life is a little bit more life is harder and uglier than is generally talked about in polite society. And I think everybody everybody kind of knows this. This everybody is... knows that it's worse <laughs> yeah like <laughs> like or harder like it's not just smile disney everything will be fine in the end there's a lot more dirt and mud and ugliness out there and everyone knows this and donnie is just kind of like almost when he says this you can just kind of see like this audible like <sighs> finally someone who like <laughs> yeah is talking was... kind of like a normal person and, and i think though when you th- you're right, but I think does everyone know it? Because I think a lot of people avoid that. Or on the on the flip side, I'd say the majority of well-adjusted people understand that life is actually really hard. Yeah, yeah. Even even in a society like ours, where so much of material advances are have happened, we still basically at this stage in human evolution, if you live a good long 80 year life, that still means you're going to see most people you care about die. Probably some of them suffer. You're going to see a lot of hardship. You're going to go through a lot of hardship. That's just 80 years of potentially like losing a job. Everyone kind of knows that we're always one blow of the wind away from falling onto the spikes that are underneath us as we cross this tightrope. And what is so what i find so personally off-putting of pop psychology types like jim and donnie seems to is that none of this is acknowledged it's just all butterflies and puppies and sunshine and you just got to get back to that you're just (laughs) not with that yeah and and you're like there's this there's this style there's this presentation choose love not fear well what the fuck does that mean (laughs) like in what in what scenario are you talking about those platitudes are just vague enough to be meaningless to be whatever you need them to be whereas donnie gives a real examples true details to these kids like and it's not pleasant it's not pleasant to have to think oh gosh maybe i do have to change my diet if i don't want to gain weight it'd be a lot easier for someone to just say you know what learn to live with it (laughs) yeah kind of thing learn to live with it if it's what you want if it's not what you want you got to change some shit so anyway donnie dispenses with the platitudes and cuts to the real and and cuts to the chase with it again with his like teenage immaturity which means it's not the best version of what his argument could be but it's still really it gives me a lot of relief (laughs) well you certainly get a a sense of catharsis when he stands up there because you're watching these this stupid choose love not fear thing throughout like it's being played on a movie screen in within the movie and you're you're constantly like this guy is a huckster like you could just tell he seems too slick he seems fake uh, and even when he's talking, you you get this impression that that what he's selling is snake oil. And when Donnie stands up, it's like this 
this is crap. And people are kind of like, yeah, it is crap. Like, And I think, but we see this all the time. People are manipulated by these things because they provide, and this he brings this up in the first confrontation, it's a simplification of reality. And if you can simplify reality enough and believe it's that simple, then you can begin to deal with it in a different way. And people, it's safer. If I just believe that this is the way the world works and it's not chaotic and it's just this battle between love and fear... Well, then I put everything in the love or the fear category, the good guys, the bad guys. This is the same thing that partisans do. This is the same thing that ideologies do is they create a system within which to live that gives order to the chaos. And I think what Donnie is doing in his confrontation of this guy on a deeper level is that he's confronting this idea that things can be simplified. He's saying, no, actually, like you said, there is suffering. Actually, it does take hard work to achieve what you want to. And there will always be ambiguity. Ambiguity, And you see those three things actually addressed to each child, right? The one is, it's going to be hard work to get not fat. The other is, there's going to be ambiguity in your life all of your life. And the third one is, if you don't want people picking on you and beating you up, you're just going to have to kind of stand up for yourself more. You're going to have to be stronger. Which might include going to the gym and actually lifting weights. Yeah, exactly. Which is a very detailed example of a positive step he could take, which is something Jim doesn't give him. No, no. And, and Jim, people he, like he Jim... He says you got to learn to love yourself. People like Jim can't do that because pe- as soon as they're giving practical advice, it loses the allure of what they're trying to create, which is this dichotomy, which is this simplification... This thing that lives in the abstract that if you can only tap into it, you'll actually solve all the problems. And I mean, that love-hate, that love-fear dichotomy, even if it were all true, it would totally not account for all of the suffering that comes from the world outside of our heads anyway. Like, oh, am I being too fearful when that tsunami hits my town? Or am I being too fearful when I get cancer? (laughs) Yeah. Like, what is, what the, what does my attitude towards fear or love have anything to do with these external suffering mechanisms that are built into the structure of the universe. And so that kind of awareness of the, the real underbelly of living that I think, and again, I, I, I really, my hypothesis is that most people get this. Most people kind of know about this stuff, which is why I think dark humor has such an appeal because it's playing at a truth that we all kind of know. This is why there's just jokes that are on the surface terrible are actually so therapeutic for people because they're actually kind of signaling to each other that, hey, I know that there's a terribleness to the world that we have to kind of overcome. And you know that there's a terribleness to the world that we kind of have to overcome, but we can't exactly talk about it in polite society. So we'll actually have to just kind of like make little hints at it through our humor, because that's how we can keep the awareness of it alive so that we can still work towards improving the world a little bit at a time, as opposed to these, like this panacea of goodness that, uh, Jim is fluffily giving to these kids, if and only to these love- adults too. It seems like he's 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 kind of a well, he's definite. He's a snake oil salesman. He's selling people a dream, and I th- I think those are some of the worst kind of humans in the world. People who sell dreams because they're they don't have to deliver. for money. Yeah, for like money. For actual. Oh, money. that's what I mean. Not yeah. not people who inspire dreams. 
No, but people who are making money off of selling people. I think of uh, multi-level marketing companies, right? And a lot of a lot of that, they're not selling a product. They're selling an idea of they they call things like a, a job a bad thing, right? It's like oh, they have a job, right? Well, if everyone is working in these industries, then who's gonna clean? Like who's gonna do the plumbing? Who's gonna do the carpentry? Like we we need people to have jobs. Civilization, society function on these things, and we we need people to be afraid at times, right? Because there are things to be afraid of that we need to be protected from. Like there's people out there who spend all their time maybe not being afraid, but thinking about danger, so that we have to think about it less. Anyway, point being, Donnie Darko stands up, and. I think the narrator at this point is is painting him as someone who's willing to confront the wrongs he sees in the world, and he seems to do this consistently throughout uh, the the movie. Is he's and yet when he's corrupted by Frank or goes into this weird shadow state, he's terribly destructive. The thing that strikes me the most about Donnie the character is his fear of death uh, which is funny because uh the it's so the the movie's so layered because yes while well, we've just gone on a, a bit about how fear and love dichotomy isn't a thing he is genuinely afraid of being alone which he expresses to the therapist but also i think of dying too and the theme there's this theme throughout the entire movie of Time's running out. You know, there's an end date here. And it is funny because you're watching Donnie live this regular life, but you're thinking in the back of your head the entire time you're watching it, time's running out, what's going to happen? And and you, at least I did when I watched it, instinctively believe that Frank is telling the truth when he says this exact time frame. And yet Donnie doesn't seem to fully believe it. And it made me think about how one of the hardest things that humans can do is confront death and say, I know it's coming. How am I going to deal with it? Am I going to be able to live with it? When it comes, how will I meet it? And we see he he's avoiding meeting it through much of it, and yet he's curious about it, and he's asking questions, and he's thinking about it. But he's very terrified of it, especially that scene with with the therapist where she says, are you afraid to die? And he says, I'm afraid of being alone. And he tells a story about his dog going to die. But all of this goes back to what uh, Grandma Death, as they call her in the movie, or Mrs. Sparrow, uh, says to him, every single living thing dies alone. And I thought that theme throughout the movie is really a theme of how Donnie ends up confronting his death and actually meeting death in a noble way in order to save everyone. He yeah. Loves. Cause he actually chooses his own demise to return everything back to the primary universe. The way he gets everything back to the primary universe is the outcome is he'll have to die. And he presumably knows this by the end of the movie. So yeah, it is his kind of transformation and I think he probably does that because of wanting to make sure because both Gretchen and Frank, who we find out is actually a real person, they actually both end up dying near the end of the tangent universe, which is interesting because then we realize they were actually 
traveling back in time to the beginning of the tangent universe, which apparently they can do because they talk about it in this book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as I think you've said in the past, time travel is always paradox, and it almost never so makes sense. So both Frank yeah. and Gretchen are actually, upon rewatching in the tangent universe, you would see that they're actually trying to manipulate Donnie into doing this thing to get the tangent universe back to the primary universe, which is, again, very confusing. All that aside... Donnie's journey in the Tangent Universe is to become resolved to his own demise. Yeah. And he does. And he does, exactly. And, and it is, that is, I guess, the best final chapter you can write for yourself. To actually become resolved to the universe as it is, even though, ironically, again, in this movie, the universe as it is is not as it is. <laughs> However, yes, yes. in real life, to be resolved to the human condition is at least for now, a good placeholder for the apex of maturity, I think. Yeah, yeah. like <laughs> You know, and it totally adjusts the way you treat others and what things you pursue in your life. And the cool part is it shows him through this journey. And I mean, at the very beginning, he is so terribly immature, even like how he's arguing with his sister. Again, great acting by real siblings, the, the Gyllenhaals. Uh, yeah, but, that scene at the beginning is yeah. so funny. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, well, you're a fuck ass. And then the and little then sister, la- yeah, the little like, sister, what's a fuck like, ass? What's a fuck ass, Dad? <laughs> and he just keeps looking at her and saying, "Cover your ears." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's the hero's journey of this movie that I found so inspiring is that he does confront this thing that I think most, I would argue. There aren't most well-adjusted people don't confront it till it comes and don't even just don't even think about it. But, but they have the potential to. But they have the potential to. Exactly. And things like this movie make these really complicated ideas at least a little bit more up to the surface to talk about. So uh, a couple other interesting characters in this movie are Donnie's parents. Yep. Uh, I can't remember their names, but his mom and his dad. There's a few interesting scenes with them. One of the early scenes with his dad, um, they're driving in a car. His dad's driving. Donnie's in the passenger seat. And his dad asks him about his therapist. He's like, oh, have you seen, gone to see your, oh, what's your doctor's name again? So he doesn't know his son's doctor's name, which feels a little bit standoffish <laughs> from or, a parent. Or, 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 yeah, well, definitely neglectful. <laughs> right hope how you know your... if this is something that's really meaningful to your son or your son is going to see a shrink basically it just it doesn't seem like that's a hugely important part <laughs> of his uh dad's day-to-day to know that name which seems not so <laughs> nice but on balance i still i do think his parents show care for him and his sisters right there's a couple parts where when the therapist is talking to the parents and they bring up the fact that Donnie gets suspended for a few days because he told his teacher Kitty to shove a book up her anus, <laughs> I believe was the correct, or the way that Kitty said he said yeah, it. Yeah. His dad says, well, he had, he had just cause to insult her. <laughs> and I actually love the dad and the mom as character, or not just as characters, but their character. Like, for example... The dad doesn't flip out on his kids when they're fighting at the table. His wife comes in and says, your son just called me a bitch. And he says, well, you're not a bitch. Bitching, <laughs> but you're not a bitch. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah, they, they seem both like a little bit ironical. Yeah, they're cool parents. Like I just love how the dad 
is laughing in the principal's office when he finds out what Donnie did. <laughs> yeah. Well, because I think in the moments where Donnie needs them, they're there. Uh, there's one part with his mom where he says to his mom, how does it feel to have a wacko as a son? And she says, it feels wonderful. So it's not that she's trying to tell him that he's not a wacko. She's telling him, even if you are a wacko, I still love you. Yeah. Right? And there's and I, I think, by and large, you look at their love for their kids and how they treat Donnie and the, and the girls – Great parents, like good role models. I, yeah. I would like, I, I would Shouldn't aspire. Shouldn't be building house under a jet yeah. stream, <laughs> under a wormhole, <laughs> or a wormhole. If yeah, known the wormhole was there. <laughs> you know, puberty's nerficked, <laughs> right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so I think there's some cool like inspiration there, but still, again, the shadow side of it's like finding that right spot between paying enough attention to be involved so you know the therapist doctor's name yes yeah <laughs> but also giving your growing kids enough space to explore their own personalities and i think that they do that on balance pretty cool which is a good way to parent it seems to me yeah yeah so uh, yeah that's a good point gretchen okay awesome awesome character really enjoy her uh, I enjoyed kind of her the ironies like she's like I had to change my name and I thought Gretchen would be <laughs> would be a great one right like she's she's very right. ironic she's got a dry sense of humor but she's you're pretending to be an 85 year old woman I guess yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're going with that name but but she she also seems to like I love the scene where she walks into the class and Drew Barrymore the teacher character Karen. Uh, says, sit beside the boy you think is the cutest. Like, <laughs> Setting the stage for her. Yeah, it's really, it's really well done. <laughs> um, yeah, that was pretty funny. Uh, just their, their relationship is, is, it just seems wholesome and like it reminds me of teenage relationships that I had that uh, that went well and and ended, of course. But like that feeling, it's so intense at the time, and you can just tell that both of them are like she she's only known Donnie for what two and a half weeks but when her mom disappears where does she go to saying she feels safest there yeah to his house totally it's definitely showing donnie to be a safe character like he's presenting himself in a way that is very trustworthy and he is like the whole movie he's definitely earns the trust of the yeah, people around him absolutely except for you know burning down that guy's house and and flooding the entire school yeah but the thing that's so crazy about Gretchen is that it turns out like the, the great twist of the movie is that actually Gretchen and Frank are doing the same thing to Donnie manipulating which him, is yeah. crazy because Frank is this terrifying rabbit who only shows up in what appears to be the moments of I call it the shadow world it's like Donnie's subconscious where he's like not asleep and not awake he's in between it's kind of like it's kind of it's what it reminded me is if you've ever seen any of the insidious movies the it's what it's called the further the astral plane where you're neither dead dead or alive you're kind of in between somewhere and that's the only time when frank shows up to donnie is when he's in those stages and yet all of the scenes with gretchen and donnie are in the middle of the day or at least like in a house party when he's at his most cogent and coherent and thoughtful and so as the movie's happening you can't but feel like these are completely different if you even thought about it and yet the twist of the movie is that actually both frank and gretchen are doing the same thing to donnie which is to get him to bridge the gap between the tangent universe and 
the primary universe and it's because at the end again the end of the tangent universe is frank is driving a car that runs over gretchen and kills her and then donnie shoots frank with a gun that he got earlier in the movie that it was in his parents closet which again interestingly he lies to his therapist about yeah because he's there's like these jelly things that project out of people's which is one of the things that donnie should realize is going weird is that this jelly thing projects out of his chest and leads him upstairs to find the gun. And then his therapist asks if he found anything when this happened. He says, no. So he still has his faculties, more clues. These are just more cool clues throughout the movie that Donnie's not crazy. What a twist. Hey, he's not crazy. And it's actually, <laughs> yeah. And it's actually a time travel. And it's, it's like the opposite I love of that. a twist in yeah, a sense. It's right? like, again, spoiler for the movie hereditary, but the whole movie, that whole movie, you're led to believe it's a mental health issue. No, it's actually a conspiracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like yeah. that's such a cool thing. It's not a conspiracy in this movie. It's a alternate universe, basically. But nevertheless, because of this, again, never mind the details. Because Frank and Gretchen die at the end of the tangent universe, but because this is in a realm where they know how to time travel, they time travel to the beginning of the tangent universe and start manipulating Donnie to get to where he needs to get to to actually bridge the tangent universe to the primary universe so the whole movie is actually gretchen and frank time traveling and yet we're led to believe frank is a manifestation of donnie's subconscious and gretchen's a real person who's just in his life but both of them are just are, are time traveling yeah. corpses <laughs> <laughs> that's actually what they are yeah which is crazy <laughs> um but for a moment frank as manifestation it's definitely like a a scary character he's calm he's not overexcited he just kind of is telling donnie hey these dark things are coming or you have to do these things and yet all the things like again he's only telling donnie to do these things so it gets donnie down the path that he needs to get to to realize he needs to sacrifice himself just to get back to the primary universe but again upon first watching you're like oh my gosh (laughs) This is just such a scary version of a part of someone's personality that makes them do bad things. Yeah. and, and Because he's not emotional about it. He's just clinical. And the way that he talks, even the, the voice that he uses, like... Don't worry. We got away with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> it's chilling. So and that I was think, done that so well. also adds so much to the movie because it's this... It's chilling, and yet it's a gigantic bunny that's a bunny costume and one of my favorite lines in the whole movie that kind of actually exposes the tangent versus primary universe stuff is donnie's in what you've called his shadow state and he looks over and he's in the theater and gretchen's sleeping beside him and he looks over and there's frank and he just gets this creepy smile on his face and he says why are you wearing that stupid bunny suit right and then Frank says to him, why are you wearing that stupid man suit? And that is like a clear indicator that Donnie has some kind of purpose and that this isn't just like you don't ask someone why they're wearing a man suit unless there's something more going on underneath. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which is, again, Donnie's subconscious piling back on his subconscious 
except that it's actually Frank manipulating Donnie. Yeah, yeah. It, that's another crazy thing about this movie is how every time Frank shows up in the movie, it's supposed to be only Donnie who could see him. But presumably, actually, everyone can see Frank. Right? Right. Because he's time traveling. And yet, if you like look back on it, it's only in scenarios that potentially Frank could be seen, but they're not acknowledging him. <laughs> oh man i which, hadn't even thought of that <laughs> which means that again that fits though because everybody is trying to get donnie to do this thing even though they don't really know it right because yeah so it yeah. wouldn't no one wants to blow frank's cover even though frank only shows up when donnie's around people could see him but like we're supposed to believe no one can <laughs> which is again like well it's crazy <laughs> true, it's so crazy true. when you next time i watch this movie knowing exactly what's happening I'm gonna be like, wow! <laughs> how did this? How did they get away with this? <laughs> yeah, but they do. They do get away with it. What's cool though, with the way that it is, is actually Frank is much more interesting of a character than he seems like he is upon first viewing. And yet, you kind of know that subconsciously when you're watching. You're like, what is Frank all about? Like, he's because he's so influencing Donnie's decision making, but he's not in the movie very much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. We talked a bunch about Jim, Jim Cunningham, yeah, Patrick Swayze's character, rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he represents to me the palpable phoniness of pop psychology, where he's just trying to sell you that thing, like you mentioned earlier. Uh, and then there's that hilarious scene in the Tangent Universe where Frank tells Donnie to go burn down his house. And upon burning down the house, the firefighters find an extra room in his mansion. Which where is like he's a kitty porn kitty porn dungeon. Like so. it's not just like kitty porns in his house. Apparently, it's like this <laughs> whole ring that he's developed, yeah. which is just gross. But. Which again will make the second last scene of the movie way more interesting. Karen, Drew Barrymore's character, there's a great line where she's getting fired by the school, and she says. I don't think you have a clue about these kids. And she says it to the guy. I think he's the principal. Must be the principal. Yeah, the school. He, he seems is, like yeah. to be the boss. And so I, it made me think of like how when people get high enough up in a job or something like that, or like far enough removed from anything resembling like a front line <laughs> type of scenario where they're working with other people, they lose touch with actual humans, and like what their actual lives are. <laughs> and the principal seemed to be more interested in running a school than educating minds. So in that sense, he was much more on the kiddie train, right? With the the more close-minded teacher where she was getting fired because she was being controversial, but she was being controversial not by her own opinions, but by just teaching a book that someone had written. And this kiddie woman seems to have some kind of power in the school or at least some kind of standing because she... She's the head. She coach makes the most of, noise. Yeah, and you she's, know, often that's what it takes to. to she's gain like a the positions. pre the pre version of a Twitter activist. <laughs> she, you know, the <laughs> the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? And yeah. she's getting the grease. And and the other thing is, though, none of this would have happened to Karen if our friend Donnie hadn't flooded the school. So presumably, once we return to the primary universe, she never gets fired. But I think the scene that fascinated me about her. Was so she gets fired and like uh, for anyone out there who's been fired, it's a, obviously a terrible experience. And she walks outside, she's just screaming, she's just so upset that this is the circumstance that she's facing. And the and there's a girl sitting there looking at her like, what's going on? And it's so fascinating to think how pe- people are put in positions 
where they have to be be looked up to by children, whether it's a teacher or a or a boss or like they're put in these positions, but they're still human. They're still suffering from existence in a sense, and the and the frustrating aspects of existence, like getting fired or people dying. And so she goes through this, and and then she and I love the look on her face when she realizes the girl's there. It's very much like, well, now you know that being an adult can really suck. Too. Yeah, that's not suck just being too, a yeah. kid. Yeah, like how that. You're never too far ahead of the jaws of reality, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah. the and the things that they can t- get to. But I, so, but like, I want to know your thought on when people get far enough removed from actually dealing with human beings. Do you think it's possible that they start to not really take into account what might be what they should be trying to do? So this principal, when he's firing, now he only cares about the school. Well, he he's care. He seems to be caring much more about the administrative functioning of the school as opposed to anything that, uh, anything with any sort of edge, but interest his students might be learning. Well, have you ever heard of the Iron Law of bureaucracy? <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's uh, I forget who wrote it, but it's one of my favorite concepts, and it's this idea that most organizations, whether they be any kind of organization or institution starts out is usually started by a visionary because it takes someone who who and so someone who has a cause a belief that uh, in what in the purpose of this institution and so they'll create it but visionaries don't keep things functioning generally speaking it's usually um, more technocratic people but what happens in the iron law of bureaucracy is that it starts out visionary starts out trying to accomplish a goal but once the institution grows big enough People within the institution are only serving the continuation of the institution. So the, the the institution itself moving forward and continuing to exist becomes the primary objective as opposed to the original vision to begin with. And I think we see that with this principle. And I think you see it all the time. And like you said, when you get separated from the nitty gritty reality of whatever you're doing, uh, and a good example of for this for me is I work in politics and um, on a campaign, I try to always do all the jobs that everyone on the campaign is doing, specifically door knocking and phone calling. And I do that because I want to remember what the voter is thinking, like the real person who I'm trying to connect with on this campaign. I want to make sure that I'm talking to them too and not just talking to strategists in back rooms who are going to come up with theories. And, I, and I've seen this fail. So, yeah. I think it's incredibly important not to lose touch with what you're trying to do, even if you have a like a large organization under you that's trying that that is carrying out these functions. If you don't, if you, if you don't, if you don't stay, you know, attached to your roots or whatever you want to say, you're you're not actually going to be accomplishing anything anymore. You're just going to be perpetuating the institution, which we see the principal doing here. He's just protecting the school and the continuation of the school and his job and all that kind of stuff. He's not. He's no longer thinking about what the kids need, which is they love this teacher. She's a great teacher. But she's controversial. She's controversial, exactly. Well, or at least... And then what is the purpose of education? To educate. And that doesn't appear to be what the principal is primarily concerned with. He's primarily concerned with parents' feelings and things like that, not the kids learning new things. Right. And, I mean, 
this seems married to this thing that Kitty, the other teacher, is doing because at this like parent-teacher meeting, she calls for the banning of this Graham Greene book, which is a book that Karen, the English teacher, has been teaching the high school students. And I guess in that book, there's a they talk about it. The it's the destructors, I think. Yeah, and in the there's a scene in the book where uh, kids go into a house and they find a whole bunch of money in a mattress, but they burn it and they flood the house by breaking a water main. And then when the school is flooded. Kitty is blaming this book, and then in prox proxia, I think that's the term, blaming Karen, the teacher, for bringing it, and then saying they need to ban the book. So then they're getting into censorship, which is also like the impulse of censor needs to be extra opposed because it always presents itself as benevolence and benign paternalism, right? Like Kitty is presenting is like we're only getting rid of this book so that no bad things happen. <laughs> Yeah, and it's, it's, as opposed to that, she goes to her whole. But she has her, view. she has her ear or her mouth in the ear of the principal too, because he gets rid of the most controversial teacher, or like apparently the most controversial teacher, Karen, for teaching this book. But it's actually, it's really the only class we see the kids in in the movie where they're a little bit interested, or they're learning anything, like, right? Because she's learning... she's tapping into their. That, that little fire burning deep down in them that wants to learn but just needs to have it be drawn out in the right way. And whereas with the principal and Kitty, there's this really unholy marriage between an imp- like censorship and a continuation of the bureaucracy. Well, we also have that other teacher who we don't, I don't think we really see them in class, but he also seems to be dating Karen, but he's the one that gives Donnie the book when he asks about time travel. And then there's that really weird moment where he's like, well, I can't talk about this anymore or I lose my job. Yeah, that was another, like, <laughs> I mean, there appears to be a like culture of fear going on for the teachers in this school, which, you know, again, not to dichotomize. <laughs> Let's say a culture <laughs> yes. of not trusting that administration will have their back yeah. if they get into controversial topics. And yet... Anyone with any sense knows that these are the topics where the greatest interest lies. <laughs> and not only that, where the best potential for learning is. Exactly. So they're like, he's saying, hey, I might lose my job if they start talking about God. Because Donnie brings out the idea of God in the conversation of time travel and time channels and all these things. Which actually, in Tangent Universe versus Primary Universe, are super relevant. But again, we don't know too much about that because we don't have the director's cut, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but when Donnie brings up God, which... God, religion, Genesis, beginning, and destiny, metaphysics. These are all the most interesting questions. Most, Especially growing up, these are the things that fascinated me. Like, where did we come from? Where, why are we here? And so these are the questions that Donnie wants. And these are the kind of things that, uh, I think his name is Mr. Monotoff. Uh, I looked it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He can't talk about because he's going to lose his job. And so to me, this is like maybe the most tragic part of the movie where I'm thinking, how have we possibly created a culture where we we can't talk about the most interesting things to people who are most interested in them? Yeah. Right? Like why the hell can't, we talk about things like ethics and metaphysics and epistemology with 16-year-olds. They're the ones who want to know. Like, this is exactly what teachers should be talking about. Any time someone brings up God at school, there should be a deep discussion about it. It doesn't matter the class. 
could be chemistry, could be English, could be gym. <laughs> if it comes up, this is my supposition. Culturally, we need to start supporting the idea that it's okay for teachers to talk about these controversial things with students because these are when they want to know about it. And if as a parent that makes you uncomfortable, that actually says more about you than the world. Oh, yeah, but I think that's the, the, the tightrope uh, over the spiky pit that we were referring to earlier that teachers have to walk because parents can be brutal about these things. And, I mean, I've, I've talked to a number of teachers who, I mean, that balancing act between making sure that the parents don't just come for your head because, and, you know, one of the best descriptors I ever had of, of teaching uh, personally, that really made me think about teaching differently, was someone said to me, we see the whole spectrum of society, right? It's most people are hanging out with people that are like them most of the time. Uh, so like if you're a lawyer, you tend to hang out with lawyers, if you're a doctor, you're with doctors. If you're if you're a tradesman, you have a lot, you tend to hang out with tradespeople. In my experience, if you're into politics, you tend to hang out with political people. Um, and teachers tend to hang out with teachers. But Teachers are hanging out every day with everyone, with everyone, with a kid, with a spectrum of, of children from the kid, the, the children of the lawyer to the children of the tradesperson to the children of the unemployed person. Right. Like all of these kids are in their classes. And so they see uh, a wider sociological spectrum than most people and therefore are in some ways more broadly minded just because of that and yet a lot of these parents are so in their lane in their bubble this is how the world works why are you teaching my child this that it can become a problem yeah well i guess what i'm saying is adults in our culture just need to grow up a little yes. bit more and yeah. not be so scared <clears throat> and of be the more broad be more reflective on themselves, right? And, and actually get to know themselves and be honest. Not be so scared of ideas. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why don't we just say so, that? So, because, like, look what you're losing. What we're losing is Donnie is this 17-year-old, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed kid who wants to learn about the world. And he's got, like, a passion. And this teacher, Mr. Monotoff, is, like, someone that Donnie is one of the few adults in the movie that Donnie clearly has tons of respect for and really is curious to know what they think about this particular thing. And like, he's on an intellectual, he's blazing an intellectual trail in his own life. Donnie is where he's like, got these ideas. What about time travel? What about this? What about this? And he's just like, he's ready to go. And his, he's ready to take that next pedagogical step. Yeah. That next step in his education. And what happens? All this guy can say to him is like, Sorry, get fired. I can't talk to you about that. Just like pouring water on Donnie's brain. Yeah. And uh, that is so tragic because we should be fanning each other's flames intellectually, not, yeah, not, dousing, them not dousing them because yeah. of, I don't know, what is it? The humbugs of society tell us we have to? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, fuck that. I, I agree. Follow that curiosity. Follow that intellectual passion. It's the Promethean, keep the fire alive, right? right? Yeah, exactly. So this movie itself. <laughs> I, you guys can't see, but Luke just had an exasperated look on his face. I don't want to like repeat everything. It's so confusing. Really positive things. 
I love that it was set in like everyday suburbs. That's where they lived. Yeah. To yeah. kind of mirror a lot of the inanity that Donnie is kind of internally rebelling against. The inanity of his teachers and his, well, not just Kitty and the principal and other people who all have power over him. Kind of like the social norms of his neighborhood prevent a lot of the things that Donnie's interested in. Funny cast, <laughs> funny to really cast real life siblings. Yeah, Maggie I thought and that Jake. was really well done. Yeah, <laughs> they had eight, I think I mentioned this earlier, but '80s nostalgia before it was cool. Well, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is 2001. They even, they even get on their bikes uh, at the end with reference to. I think it's kind of like a homage to ET, e. but. We see that now in Stranger Things. They pay they pay homage to that those uh, iconic biking scenes from the '80s movies. Yeah. So then, I think one of the themes of this movie is that just the soul crushing inanity, and what's that like a blasé hegemonic dominance that the low standards of middle minded people have over the deeply creative, curious, exploratory types like Donnie. How basically he's always coming up against a wall of someone who is less curious, less exploratory, less interested in the world than he is, and has no time for him in his endeavors. And that is interesting because it both galvanizes Donnie to learn more, but also really depresses him. So it adds to that kind of anomie that he's feeling a lot which comes out with a therapist where he says, I'm scared of being alone. Um, intellectually, he's often left alone. Like he's, he's told to be le- like, no, don't go there. <laughs> we're not going to, fu- we're, I'm, I'll walk with you intellectually down this path, but no further. If you go further, I'll make your life worse. Yeah. This is an impulse. I really try to temper in myself, especially working with kids to not just not prevent kids from, thinking more but also to when they get to a point where it's a little bit tricky to encourage it in a pro-social way that still honors their curiosities yeah i think that's incredibly important but it's also important to do for adults and i mean i think one of the worst things that people can do is make fun of someone who's excited about something or interested in something totally one of my best friends uh really loves ants like he loves reading about them. He has ant colonies and he's like very successful in, in the work that he does. But I love talking to him about ants because they're so fascinating to him and his passion for them. I learn all kinds of things about not just myself, but, but about him and about ants in that process. Anyone who makes fun, like it is such a childish and immature thing to do to, to not allow someone's passion to exist because you just aren't interested in it it's it's awful i'm and doubly so if you have power over them exactly exactly to just quash that in some especially some really like bureaucratic or benevolent way where it's like oh no i know best so we'll shut that down right now thank you very much yeah yeah which is unfortunately i think a little bit too common in the way adults treat especially young people and each other and don't get me wrong i'm not romanticizing young people young people can be very annoying (laughs) but (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) but and we're the the adults so we need to be better yeah and we need to figure out how to transcend our own annoyance with the younger members of our species to help them 
continually follow those flames that appear in their minds down paths as they arise. I think probably to just wrap up this episode, <laughs> I'm going to try and get my I'm going to try and wrap my head around the ending of this movie. Basically, what happens is at near the end of the tangent universe, Gretchen gets run over by the car being driven by Frank. Donnie shoots Frank with the gun that he found in his parents' well, his dad's closet, I think. So both Frank and Gretchen are dead. He returns home, gets a car, or I don't know. Like he, So he carries Gretchen home, gets a car, goes out to where we saw Donnie at the very beginning of the movie, which was just lying on the road. And there's like all of this weird, like it like looks like almost a tornado, but like a supernatural one happening. And so because this whole time we're left thinking, okay, this movie is going to end or the world is going to end because of what it Frank looks like said. the world's sort of ending. But Donnie's mom and younger sister are returning back to Virginia from New York on an airplane, which ends up being the airplane that Donnie, using telekinesis rips the engine off to put through a wormhole because right now with the world ending, there's a wormhole coming because apparently there's wormholes at the end of a tangent universe or maybe there's just a wormhole here. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. Because apparently, again, in the ontology of this (laughs) tangent versus primary universe, this jet engine acts as what is called an artifact. If you can bring an artifact from the tangent universe through a wormhole into the primary universe, you can return to the primary universe. And this is what actually Donnie's mission is, which is what it turns out Gretchen and Frank were trying to get him to do the whole time because they were what were called manipulated dead Everyone else was manipulated living. They all have like a sign of kind of idea of what they're doing, but not really. They're all just trying to get basically everyone in the movie is trying to get Donnie to the point where he realizes that he needs to use telekinesis to rip this jet engine off the plane that his mother and sister are on to go through a wormhole to land back in his house again. And that will return everyone and everything back to the primary universe 28 days le- bef- back into the past, right? I think I've got that right. Yeah, yeah, I think you got it. I think you got it. <laughs> so, you know, again, all that aside, <laughs> what I find very philosophically interesting is that I would say the most iconic part of this movie is when that happens and the jet engine crashes again into Donnie's bedroom, but this time instead of being at the golf course with Frank, Donnie's in his bedroom and he gets killed by it. But what's happening is when this happens the that song mad world originally by tears for fears i believe covered by gary jules i'm not sure but it's a piano version and what happens is after the when the jet engine crashes we start seeing the bedrooms of all the other characters of the movie we see karen we see the physics teacher monotov we see jim we see the therapist we see kitty we see frank i think we see maybe his mom and dad too in their seats when it happens yeah and apparently what again i learned later (laughs) is that there's a residual memory happening for all of these people where they've like woken up from a dream and they kind of have like a dream-like understanding of the tangent universe that they have all lived through but they don't really know it so there's a great scene right at the end where Gretchen rides up on a bike and waves at 
Donnie's mom and Donnie's mom waves back and they kind of both look like they feel like they should know each other but they don't in a way that you might if you saw someone in a dream or you don't remember right and so I found this to be a really interesting play on the idea of eternal recurrence from right, Nietzsche. Right, eternal return of the same. Right, where yeah. eternal recurrence, the short shorthand version of it is an idea from Nietzsche where uh, if you had to live everything in your life all over again for eternity, would that be a great thing or would that be a thing that would make you feel like you were in hell? And the the idea of eternal recurrence itself is to be understanding of how to live in such a way that if you had to do it infinitely amount over it would be something that would not make you unhappy that you'd be very stoked that you got to live that life over and over and over so it's basically the philosophically rigorous (laughs) version of the platitude live your best life right right right. whereas what's happening here and they actually it's super interesting because there is a conversation between donnie and his teacher monotov about this where Donnie says something like, what if a person could see their destiny, but then get to choose different? Or maybe the teachers, I don't know. So basically, especially with Jim, the guy who has the kitty porn dungeon, who wakes up now before he's been busted with it, what's he going to do? These characters have all kind of seen their future in a dreamlike way, and now they get to go back to before all of the really big things happened to them and what are they going to do i find that really interesting and i f- uh, i feel bad kind of for gretchen though because she's you know she doesn't get to have donnie back or <laughs> uh, except that she gets to be alive yeah which is yeah which is nice yes exactly no true no that's a very good point i like i liked you tying that into nietzsche that was a, that was a, s- a smooth move <laughs> <laughs> so yeah like what if you knew where your current path would go and yet you could still change it yeah because that was actually something that they talk about right I guess that's kind of what the movie's kind of all about. It's it's what the movie's about, but it's also supposed to make us, the audience, think a little bit about that. Like, okay, if I imagine a path forward of what I'm doing now, imagine I could dream 28 days in the future, but it's a dream that is actually my life. It will be what happens would I want that? Would I change it? What would I change? Like, what would, what, I think we're supposed to be left with the idea of like, what would I do with that kind of even pseudo information? Well, and I think, which is what these characters are being left with as they awake as the primary universe returns. Like, with all great art, it's nuanced. There are a lot of themes being woven together here. I think one of the other ones is, what we talked about earlier with death facing death, but also being a bit of a, like, I mean, Donnie is the hero of this, not just the protagonist, but the hero because the choices he makes saves everybody else. And now those choices are being manipulated or, or whatever, but well, it saves Frank Gretchen, his mom and his little sister. And theoretically, I suppose if tangent universes become problems for the primary universe. Yeah, true. Good point. So, I mean... So, yeah, that was actually... Okay, that's my last question. What happened... How does Donnie realize these things? What happens to him? And that's really, really not made clear. And I don't think... I don't think you can actually say for certain. But I think there are a lot of moments throughout the movie that make it clear that he is realizing it. So, obviously, Grandma Death has something to do with this. this. She wrote this book that he then reads... 
uh, and not just in the tangent universe, right? The, well, we only see her in the tangent universe, but presumably she exists in the primary universe as well. And, and there's also this idea that what if Grandma Death had actually not chosen to do was the reason that she was constantly in this state of, of, of cycling to go check her mailbox over and over again. It's because she'd not, I've, I've, thought, I've theorized, what if she'd been in Donnie's position and not done what Donnie did and then was just kind of in this loop now because she'd failed to achieve the... Yeah, I did read a theory actually out there that both Frank and Gretchen had been doing this infinite amount of times to get Donnie finally to make the decision to to save the primary universe. Well, and it's it's it makes sense, right? Because uh, if you think about it, he has to kill his the whole like the tangent universe is his whole universe, and he has to kill his mother and sister in the tangent. He has to kill Frank in the tangent universe. He has to commit these fairly egregious crimes for some reason that were not really made clear, but, but they seem to like, it's like one of those things yeah, where like he, he just feels like he has to listen to Frank. Yeah. But what, like I, again, it, it's just not totally clear why other than maybe his deeper seated he does, desire he, to do the right thing. But he does have that one line where he's like, I have to listen to Frank because Frank saved my life. We don't know whether Frank actually has told him this at some point where we didn't see him. He just gets this sense that Frank saved his life because, well, it, Frank called it, him out the of the house. At the beginning, the jet yeah. engine crashed just because Frank called him out of the house. But I still, like, it's very, very, like, it's, I guess it's probably intentionally unclear why Donnie really listens to Frank because, again, establishing that Donnie isn't crazy he wouldn't just listen to someone telling him to go break the law unless he was getting tapped into at a deeper level of something that he kind of knows to be true about something. Like there's something there's this movie is like a masterpiece and yet it's still missing a massive part of the plot to me, which is, what is the thing that's making Donnie realize that he needs to go do all the things that he needs to do to return the tangent universe to the primary universe yeah. to actually make that yeah, decision? And that's just not made clear at all. But maybe, maybe everything about that's it makes sense point. for mental health yes. problems. Yeah, yeah. Nothing makes sense in terms of, but unless it's maybe it's Donnie realizing the intricacy of what everything is happening to him based on time travel. And there does seem to be like a, I, I definitely think that there's a predestination strain of in this, like you, because remember there's the, when um, Donnie's father is talking to his mother and says, remember that person who died uh, on their way to prom? And it's like, they said that he was doomed. And it's like, they say the same thing about Donnie. Right, so and that's Donnie realizing his destiny. Yeah, maybe these are questions that are answered better in the director's cut, yeah. which is the version <laughs> of the movie. Watch the director's cut. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's like it's a fucking great movie. Yeah, it's so it's really really thought provoking. The philosophy of again the like everything feels so intentional. The line in the song "Mad World," uh, the dreams in which I'm dying are the, the best, best I've, I've ever had, had. Yeah. and that's. 
essentially what's happening to Donnie is this tangent universe is a dream where he's dying, right? Or he, he's going to come back to die in the real world. So he's in a dream knowing that what he has to do is go back to the real world to die, to save everyone else. And I think maybe that realization maybe is what he needs because that realization is, oh, okay, even though I am quote-unquote dying alone, I'm actually doing something so much greater than me. Like for some reason, I'm the chosen one where I'm this like living receiver who has to return this tangent universe back to the primary universe before it collapses and kills everyone. And like that resolution is his, like that's good enough. Yeah. I guess. Well, I think also part of how Frank and Gretchen set him up to do this is like, he loves Gretchen uh, and whether she purposely dies or sets, if they've done this millions of times, this is all theorizing, but like she knows that if she dies in the tangent universe, he's going to go back to the primary universe because he wants to save her life. And that's the only way. Yeah. Now, but yeah, yeah. I mean, now we're waxing on what's <laughs> happening in this movie other than I think part of <laughs> real life is appreciating aesthetic beauty and this movie has so much aesthetic beauty. oh the in, cinematography in, is insane the cinematography the acting but just the way it makes you think and you know what's actually so great is that this movie is so confusing at the end and yet the whole movie none of it feels confusing yeah, you don't feel confused by it at all the the experience of watching this movie is very coherent Which and is- it's only the end the very end where you're like what the fuck but I think that's the genius of it because then it makes you think about it. And like everyone, that's why I think it's why I became a cult classic because everyone at the end, you're like, wait, what happened here? I want to know more. I need to, I need to understand this. So good example of this. Every interaction in the movie between Donnie and Frank seemed a hundred percent comprehensible to me. Like I understand what's happening here. Frank, even if it, like it's probably mental health and now knowing what's actually happening I go back and I'm like, wait, wait a minute. How did Frank do that? How did Donnie know but then not know, right? Like, what's going on in their mutual knowledge version of this where Donnie knows he's not crazy, but he sees Frank, but it doesn't seem weird to him that he's... That he's like, Donnie him. knows he's not crazy, but he's seeing something that shouldn't be there that is missing an eye now, but then shouldn't be, but I'll still listen to him. It's genius how it's not confusing to watch and then so confusing to think about. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So what's your takeaway? I think, well, I think the takeaway is in this journey that we're all on in life, uh, the one the point that you made about suffering and that we all kind of know it, but we all kind of pretend it's not there. I think it's something that we need to address and think about more and talk to each other about too, like, I know it's hard, but, and there's vulnerability there. And, but being able to say, hey, like, I mean, even when Gretchen comes to him and says, like, I'm scared, my mom is gone and the house is messed up and she doesn't know, and she thinks it's her stepdad who's come and to, to kidnap or do something to her mother. And she's like, I'm really worried that something bad is happening and I can't do anything about it. I mean, that's a point of vulnerability. And, and that doesn't just have to be in your romantic relationships, it could be in your friendships too. Because we're all we're all in this together, and uh, b- going back to what you said about 
small tyrannies. Confront them in yourself and in others. If you and yeah, I, I think I think that this movie is fun to think about, but the most important lesson from it is we have to come to some way of dealing with our death. And when we're given, when he's given that timeline, it's just, it's such a stark moment in the movie. It's like the world is going to end. <laughs> Your world's going to end. What are you going to do for your 28 more days? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, as a piece of art, this movie's incredible and thoughtful and very layered and deep. If you want to have something in the movie that makes you understand the ending, watch the director's cut. If you want to be totally confused by the ending, but still entertained, watch the theatrical cut. Really great. Jake Gyllenhaal nails it. In a universe where Jake Gyllenhaal has been in dozens of great movies, this might be his best. Yeah, his acting in this is incredible. My takeaways are encourage thinking and curiosity and education even and probably especially if it's controversial because that's where new ground is found and new frontiers are built and don't be a tyrant even in the smallest way possible figure out a way to have fair expectations and if you come across someone who is underneath you in some sense in terms of like a social hierarchy you're a teacher, they're a student, or some sort of type of relationship, and you start to see capacity that's greater than your own, overcome your own ego and start learning with this person. If you are the person being tyrannized, don't fight the tyranny, transcend it. Figure out ways around it. Use your creativity that you already have, otherwise you wouldn't even notice this tyranny, and grow because there will be other people out there who need what you have, even if this person isn't and thank you <laughs> donnie darko for reminding me of that yeah and uh thank you you wonderful listeners for uh being with us on this journey of discovery particularly in a movie that kind of started my journey of of discovery when it comes to cinema at least less so with books but uh, i can blame my mother for that one <laughs> anyway that's really lovely i'm glad that we were able to dive into your first you know yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm glad I got to get into your first, too. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you did, too. <laughs> anyway. All right, well, this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name's David Parker. And my name's Luke Mason. Thank you for listening. Adios. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.